Welcome back. If you listened to the Season 3 preview last episode, I talked about Loper Bright Enterprises v. Raimondo, a case before the court this term that could threaten to overturn one of the most frequently cited landmark Supreme Court decisions in American administrative law and the origin of a legal doctrine known as Chevron deference. That 1984 landmark case is Chevron v. National Resources Defense Council, and it's the case I'll be reading to you today. It held that a government agency must conform to any clear legislative statements when interpreting and applying a law, but courts will give the agency deference in ambiguous situations as long as its interpretation is reasonable. With these facts in mind, We are now ready to listen to the 1984 opinion of the court in Chevron v. National Resources Defense Council. Enjoy. Justice Stevens delivered the opinion of the court in which all other members joined, except Justices Marshall, Rehnquist, and O'Connor, who took no part in the decision of the cases. In the Clean Air Act amendments of 1977, Congress enacted certain requirements applicable to states that had not achieved the national air quality standards established by the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, pursuant to earlier legislation. The amended Clean Air Act required these non-attainment states to establish a permit program regulating new or modified major stationary sources of air pollution. Generally, a permit may not be issued for a new or modified major stationary source unless several stringent conditions are met. The EPA regulation promulgated to implement this permit requirement allows a state to adopt a plant-wide definition of the term stationary source. Under this definition, an existing plant that contains several pollution-emitting devices may install or modify one piece of equipment without meeting the permit conditions, if the alteration will not increase the total emissions from the plant. The question presented by these cases is whether EPA's decision to allow states to treat all of the pollution-emitting devices within the same industrial grouping as though they were encased within a single bubble is based on a reasonable construction of the statutory term stationary source. Part 1. The EPA regulations containing the plant-wide definition of the term stationary source were promulgated on October 14, 1981. Respondents filed a timely petition for review in the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, pursuant to 42 U.S.C. Section 7607b1. The Court of Appeals set aside the regulations. The Court observed that the relevant part of the amended Clean Air Act does not explicitly define what Congress envisioned as a stationary source to which the permit program should apply, and further stated that the precise issue was not squarely addressed in the legislative history. 
in light of its conclusion that the legislative history bearing on the question was at best contradictory, it reasoned that the purposes of the non-attainment program should guide our decision here. Based on two of its precedents concerning the applicability of the bubble concept to certain Clean Air Act programs, the court stated that the bubble concept was mandatory in programs designed merely to maintain existing air quality, but held that it was inappropriate in programs enacted to improve air quality. Since the purpose of the permit program is raison d'etre, in the court's view, was to improve air quality, the court held that the bubble concept was inapplicable in these cases under its prior precedents. It therefore set aside the regulations embodying the bubble concept as contrary to law. We granted certiorari to review that judgment, and we now reverse. The basic legal error of the Court of Appeals was to adopt a static judicial definition of the term stationary source when it had decided that Congress itself had not commanded that definition. Respondents do not defend the legal reasoning of the Court of Appeals. Nevertheless, since this court reviews judgments, not opinions, we must determine whether the Court of Appeals' legal error resulted in an erroneous judgment on the validity of the regulations. Part 2 When a court reviews an agency's construction of the statute which it administers, it is confronted with two questions. First, always, is the question whether Congress has directly spoken to the precise question at issue. If the intent of Congress is clear, that is the end of the matter. For the court as well as the agency must give effect to the unambiguously expressed intent of Congress. If, however, the court determines Congress has not directly addressed the precise question at issue, the court does not simply impose its own construction on the statute, as would be necessary in the absence of an administrative interpretation. Rather, if the statute is silent or ambiguous with respect to the specific issue, the question for the court is whether the agency's answer is based on a permissible construction of the statute. The power of an administrative agency to administer a congressionally created program necessarily requires the formulation of policy and the making of rules to fill any gap left, implicitly or explicitly, by Congress. If Congress has explicitly left a gap for the agency to fill, there is an express delegation of authority to the agency to elucidate a specific provision of the statute by regulation. Such legislative regulations are given controlling weight unless they are arbitrary, capricious, or manifestly contrary to the statute. Sometimes the legislative delegation to an agency on a particular question is implicit rather than explicit. In such a case, a court may not substitute its own construction of a statutory provision for a reasonable interpretation made by the administrator of an agency. We have long recognized that considerable weight should be accorded to an executive department's construction of a statutory scheme it is entrusted to administer, and the principle of deference to administrative interpretations has been consistently followed by this court whenever decision as to the meaning 
or reach of a statute has involved reconciling conflicting policies and a full understanding of the force of the statutory policy in the given situation has depended upon more than ordinary knowledge respecting the matters subjected to agency regulation. If this choice represents a reasonable accommodation of conflicting policies that were committed to the agency's care by the statute, we should not disturb it unless it appears from the statute or its legislative history that the accommodation is not one that Congress would have sanctioned. In light of these well-settled principles, it is clear that the Court of Appeals misconceived the nature of its role in reviewing the regulations at issue. Once it determined after its own examination of the legislation, that Congress did not actually have an intent regarding the applicability of the bubble concept to the permit program. The question before it was not whether, in its view, the concept is inappropriate in the general context of a program designed to improve air quality, but whether the administrator's view that it is appropriate in the context of this particular program is a reasonable one. Based on the examination of the legislation and its history which follows, we agree with the Court of Appeals that Congress did not have a specific intention on the applicability of the bubble concept in these cases, and conclude that the EPA's use of that concept here is a reasonable policy choice for the agency to make. Part 3 in the 1950s and the 1960s, Congress enacted a series of statutes designed to encourage and to assist the states in curtailing air pollution. The Clean Air Amendments of 1970 sharply increased federal authority and responsibility in the continuing effort to combat air pollution, but continued to assign primary responsibility for assuring air quality to the several states. In addition, Section 111 provided that major new sources of pollution would be required to conform to technology-based performance standards. The EPA was directed to publish a list of categories of sources of pollution and to establish new source performance standards for each. Section 111E prohibited the operation of any new source in violation of a performance standard. Section 111A define the terms that are to be used in setting and enforcing standards of performance for new stationary sources. It provided, For purposes of this section, the term stationary source means any building, structure, facility, or installation which emits or may emit any air pollutant. In the 1970 amendments, that definition was not only applicable to the NSPS program required by Section 111, but also was made applicable to a requirement of Section 110 that each state implementation plan contain a procedure for reviewing the location of any proposed new source and preventing its construction if it would preclude the attainment or maintenance of national air quality standards. In due course, the EPA promulgated National Ambient Air Quality Standards, or NAAQSs, approved State Implementation Plans, or SIPs, and adopted detailed regulations governing 
New Source Performance Standards, or NSPSs, for various categories of equipment. In one of its programs, the EPA used a plant-wide definition of the term stationary source. In 1974, it issued NSPSs for the non-ferrous smelting industry that provided that the standards would not apply to the modification of major smelting units if their increased emissions were offset by reductions in other portions of the same plant. The 1970 legislation provided for the attainment of primary NAAQSs by 1975. In many areas of the country, particularly the most industrialized states, the statutory goals were not attained. In 1976, the 94th Congress was confronted with this fundamental problem, as well as many others respecting pollution control. As always in this area, the legislative struggle was basically between interests seeking strict schemes to reduce pollution rapidly to eliminate its social costs and interests, advancing the economic concern that strict schemes would retard industrial development with attendant social costs. The 94th Congress confronting these competing interests, was unable to agree on what response was in the public interest. Legislative proposals to deal with non-attainment failed to command the necessary consensus. In light of this situation, the EPA published an emissions offset interpretive ruling in December 1976 to fill the gap, as respondents put it, until Congress acted. The ruling stated that it was intended to address the issue of whether and to what extent national air quality standards established under the Clean Air Act may restrict or prohibit growth of major, new, or expanded stationary air pollution sources. In general, the ruling provided that a major new source may locate in an area with air quality worse than a national standard only if stringent conditions can be met. The ruling gave primary emphasis to the rapid attainment of the statute's environmental goals. Consistent with that emphasis, the construction of every new source in non-attainment areas had to meet the lowest achievable emission rate under the current state-of-the-art for that type of facility. The 1976 ruling did not, however, explicitly adopt or reject the bubble concept. Part 4 The Clean Air Act amendments of 1977 are a lengthy, detailed, technical, complex, and comprehensive response to a major social issue. A small portion of the statute expressly deals with non-attainment areas. The focal point of this controversy is one phrase in that portion of the amendments. Basically, the statute required each state in a non-attainment area to prepare and obtain approval of a new SIP by July 1, 1979. In the interim, those states were required to comply with the EPA's interpretive ruling of December 21, 1976. The deadline for attainment of the primary NAAQSs was extended until December 31, 1982, and in some cases, 
until December 31, 1987, but the SIPs were required to contain a number of provisions designed to achieve the goals as expeditiously as possible. Most significantly for our purposes, the statute provided that each plan shall require permits for the construction and operation of new or modified major stationary sources in accordance with Section 173. Before issuing a permit, Section 173 requires 1. The state agency to determine that there will be sufficient emissions reductions in the region to offset the emissions from the new source and also to allow for reasonable further progress toward attainment, or that the increased emissions will not exceed an allowance for growth established pursuant to Section 172b5. 2. The applicant to certify that his other sources in the state are in compliance with the SIP. 3. The agency to determine that the applicable SIP is otherwise being implemented and 4. The proposed source to comply with the lowest achievable emission rate, or LAER. The 1977 amendments contain no specific reference to the bubble concept, nor do they contain a specific definition of the term stationary source, though they did not disturb the definition of stationary source contained in Section 111A3, applicable by the terms of the Act to the NSPS program. Section 302J, however, defines the term major stationary source as follows. Except as otherwise expressly provided, the terms major stationary source and major emitting facility mean any stationary facility or source of air pollutants which directly emits or has the potential to emit 100 tons per year or more of any air pollutant, including any major emitting facility or source of fugitive emissions of any such pollutant, as determined by rule by the administrator. Part 5 The legislative history of the portion of the 1977 amendments dealing with non-attainment areas does not contain any specific comment on the bubble concept or the question whether a plant-wide definition of a stationary source is permissible under the permit program. It does, however, plainly disclose that in the permit program, Congress sought to accommodate the conflict between the economic interest in permitting capital improvements to continue and the environmental interest in improving air quality. Indeed, the House Committee report identified the economic interests as one of the two main purposes of this section of the bill. Section 117 of the bill, adopted during full committee markup, establishes a new Section 127 of the Clean Air Act. The section has two main purposes. One, to allow reasonable economic growth to continue in an area while making reasonable further progress to assure attainment of the standards by a fixed date, and two, to allow states greater flexibility for the former purpose than EPA's present interpretive regulations afford. The new provision allows states with non-attainment areas to pursue one of two options. 
First, the state may proceed under EPA's present trade-off or offset ruling. The administrator is authorized, moreover, to modify or amend that ruling in accordance with the intent and purposes of this section. The state's second option would be to revise its implementation plan in accordance with this new provision. The portion of the Senate Committee report dealing with non-attainment areas states generally that it was intended to supersede the EPA administrative approach and that expansion should be permitted if a state could demonstrate that these facilities can be accommodated within its overall plan to provide for attainment of air quality standards. The Senate report notes the value of case-by-case review of each new or modified major source of pollution that seeks to locate in a region exceeding an ambient standard, explaining that such a review requires matching reductions from existing sources against emissions expected from the new source in order to assure that introduction of the new source will not prevent attainment of the applicable standard by the statutory deadline. This description of a case-by-case approach to plant additions, which emphasizes the net consequences of the construction or modification of a new source, as well as its impact on the overall achievement of the national standards, was not, however, addressed to the precise issue raised by these cases. Senator Muskie made the following remarks. I should note that the test for determining whether a new or modified source is subject to the EPA interpretive regulation, the offset ruling, and to the permit requirements of the revised implementation plans under the conference bill, is whether the source will emit a pollutant into an area which is exceeding a national ambient air quality standard for that pollutant, or precursor. Thus, a new source is still subject to such requirements as lowest achievable emission rate, even if it is constructed as a replacement for an older facility resulting in a net reduction from previous emission levels. A source, including an existing facility ordered to convert to coal, is subject to all the non-attainment requirements as a modified source if it makes any physical change which increases the amount of any air pollutant for which the standards in the area are exceeded. We've come to the end of part one of this opinion, but don't worry, next episode we will pick up right where this episode left off. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.